You're listening to an Imagine More podcast. The presentation you're about to hear was recorded as part of the 2021 Get That Good Life Conference. Hi, I am Charlie. I am in Earn. I am Firefire. I am John Armstrong. John lives in Mumbai. He is a S R three render. He has helped people. John has been work is is off and forty is. John are good at being being but in John G'day everyone, what a day we've had, what a complete feast of ideas this has been and uh, here I am at the end of the afternoon to try and keep us all going and uh, so welcome. I'm coming to you from the Wurundjeri Woi Warring people region in northwest Melbourne and thanks to Charlie, it's probably not very often that he has to introduce a social role valorization trainer and uh, you're probably wondering what is that? <laughs> so thank you Charlie for that and uh, Sometimes our lives are held back by our ideas or our acceptance of poor ideas of others. Many parents are told by doctors to expect a meaningless future due to the presence of their son or daughter with a disability, and we're often enticed to behave as though their assumptions are true. One of the key benefits of SRV is that it provides a framework for guiding our efforts, where the doctor or therapist sees only something that needs fixing. SRV starts from the other end by considering what a person's life could look like and then asking what conditions would be necessary for such a life to happen. A vision is a promise of things to come that is yet to be realized. Visions force us to order our world and consider what is most important. It's a hierarchy of sorts that requires we think from first principles and then backtrack to the present to chart our course forward. It's never a straight line, though. As Sue said, mid-course adjustments and iteration are always necessary, but that's okay. If our destination remains clear, the good things of life. But will everyone else see that vision as you do? A vision is itself a mental orientation that incorporates what is optimistic and real for a person's life, rather than dwelling upon fixated ideas about a person's problems and their limitations. In other words, certain mindsets prohibit or defeat efforts for achieving the good things of life. We only see what we are looking for. And if you are looking for barriers and fear, that is all you will see. Holding an optimistic vision of the future is almost impossible for people of certain fixed mindsets. Growth mindsets are needed if progress is to be made. And when you have something to look forward to, such as a positive vision, you start identifying opportunities 
and people and resources that have been right in front of you all along. In Tia's story, you see this development taking her from her design and photo interests on Instagram to a leap in design work and to modeling and hosting fashion shows and training models and developing a complete range of fashion. Was it clear at the beginning as to where life would take her? Sometimes it's fear that holds us back. It can make us do things we wouldn't ordinarily do or hold us back from trying things that are potentially very beneficial, but we fail to muster the effort to get out there. We might never discover that, and we're sometimes just too afraid to give something a try. We seek guarantees to the future that can't be given, and the current emphasis on being safe has perhaps heightened this reluctance to take any risks. Yet never before has so many opportunities for success presented themselves, even if there are hurdles. What can hold a person back? Never before have young people everywhere been thrown into the deep end with respect to their identity, partly because it seems there's no limit as to what one might choose, and partly because of the potential abuse that can await them online as they try to establish a sense of self. Yet there is much to discover about our identity that provides a source of investment and growth. There are three essential questions that require clear answers about who we are in the world. The first question is, am I good? That is, am I acceptable? And will my presence be positively recognized? Do people find me agreeable? Am I competent? Is there a means for me to demonstrate something of what I can do that defines me positively? Another way of putting this is, am I conscientious? Can I get the job done? Will I finish it? I so enjoyed Jacob's story today too, of just how agreeable he was and also how conscientious he was on the job. How was the job to get him to leave it? <laughs> and finally, am I worthy of love? Is my intrinsic worth recognized by key figures in my life? It is that strong to bolster me against the onslaught of those who do not love me. We all need clear answers to these three questions, and so do the people that we are concerned with in this conference that we love and support. Have you ever wondered about these things in your own life? If people oppose us, it's often accompanied by an assault on these very things, as though it is instinctively known which targets cause the most damage. These are the targets the bullies use. And of course, quite often, these are the questions the bullies need answering as well. It seems that these three questions influence the degree of confidence in relating adaptively to our wider world of family and school and workplace and community. Our family and broader social feedback should answer these questions to such an extent that if we meet the odd disconfirming individual, we're not thrown off balance much at all. We are sufficiently resilient to weather the storm. We might even discover that people can be right about us too in some, in some way. There's more to learn and appreciate about ourselves. Let me explain a little bit more. These questions relate to who I am as an individual. We firstly need to differentiate ourselves from other people. To discover what sets one apart from others and makes me distinctively different. 
You might recall too that Janet used this same particular little picture uh, depicting this, who was the individual within the crowd. And, uh, and in a sense, we need a good measure of security to undertake this. And this is why in times of great distress, as we see in different parts of the world, it's not possible to undertake these things because we're only in survival mode. So to be able to do this work within ourselves as we grow older and grow up, in a sense, we need a degree of stability within our lives and security so that we can discover these things and not be just left in survival mode where there just isn't the psychic room for this wonder and exploration. The problem for young people with a disability is the early focus placed upon their disability as a way of dominating all the other features that define who they are. They become recognized by that identity. Their eligibility for funding comes through their diagnosis and level of functioning for which unique arrangements for them are created at school, perhaps. It's just that those things are seen as demerits, not brownie points. Who wants to be appreciated because of what you can't do? For parents, it may seem logical that they too surrender to the predictions and seek the illusion of safety by securing segregated and congregated service options. But segregated environments are never safe, but represent some of the most dangerous settings where anything can happen behind the closed doors of secrecy and cover-up, as the many submissions to the Commission of Inquiry attest. Wolfensberger showed us how stereotyped ideas emerge to define people as eternal children, as objects of pity, as a burden or a menace, to name just a few. But to be given such roles certainly doesn't provide the proofs that one is good. These are ideas that observers already possess well before they even meet someone. But if they then encounter a person or a group that actually appear younger than they are and are dressed as younger than they really are, then that idea gets immediately reinforced. Such a situation explains why it's so essential for everyone to acquire valued social roles to offset the potential for succumbing to the negative roles that otherwise await them. How can one break free of such an imposed identity that fails to answer these three needed questions? Even for children without disabilities, their identity isn't much improved with nine and a half hours a day on YouTube. Is this why there is a correlation between the time on social media and one's mental health? So what is it that must be discovered if a firm and positive identity is to be formed in this process of differentiation? Well, one is one's interests. It's one's interest that helps to differentiate one from others as interests grow into and form roles. The good swimmer, the skateboarder, the artist, the rock hound, the musician. What is so fascinating about these things is that not only does it help a person discover who they are, but those same features can become positively recognized by others. For sure, one has to try an interest in order to find out if it's for them. But some things might need some firm encouragement as well. For instance, how long does a person have to practice a violin before they love it? Sometimes years. But even if they didn't grow to love it, they're still able to answer the question about competence. Interests, though, are often a trigger. And a trigger is something about yourself that you didn't know before. You're really interested in this. 
and such a trigger that's often on the outside of a person that they notice and see and touch and feel and recognize, it often then ignites the person. An intense motivation for involvement with that thing, whatever it is, that doesn't require outside encouragement or compliance to sustain it, the person's own internal motivation propels them. As parents encouraging such discovery, we won't know in advance what that might be. Serendipity or opportunity, as Sue talked about, plays a role here if we're observant. Recall we tend to only see what we're looking for, so we have to keep a watch. We keep pushing engagements to create roles for a son and daughter and carefully observe whether this is the thing that is going to turn them on. But the encouragement might need to be firm. One has to be made to eat broccoli a lot before one eventually discovers that one likes it. It's the same for most things. Love is something that can occur in an instant, a revelation. You might have seen the Max Illies program recently on Australian story when he first went on stage at university. It only took the one occasion. But it can also occur gradually through repeated, successful associations with something that one grows to enjoy and look forward to. But once a person discovers an interest, it tells them where they truly belong. And notice this is a fuzzy picture, so don't get worried. You don't have to alter your, uh, your program. But there's a sense that this is now who my community is. I have a sense of who are the other people that I belong with. I haven't met them yet, but there's a strange sense that people report that they now know where they belong and who they belong with. And so having discovered how one is different from others, it's now time to join. And so now we get a sense of who the other people are that we want to rub shoulders with, who share that passion. So let's notice this, that once I'm differentiated, I can now be integrated. Once I know who I am and have done the work within myself, I can now work with others. And what's interesting, that once I work with others, I get to learn a bit more about myself. I get to be stretched. As Janet talked about, that when we're with other people, they stretch us, they can challenge us. We certainly learn by being around them. And sometimes some rough spots get rubbed off by it from us. And we get to look at ourselves that much deeper as, as well. That is, we get to differentiate ourselves at a much deeper level once again. And then that in turn helps us to be reintegrated at a deeper level as well. It's a feedback loop. So the person is more likely, though, to be welcomed because it is their interest and role in the common activity that is projected to the other members, not their impairment. Others might see the impairment, but that is no longer something that stands alone, singularly defining the person and provoking rejection. As an aside, it's been noted that many devoted people have lives of idleness, wasted lives, and when asked, what they're interested in, the answer is often nothing or I don't know. SRV suggests it is the positive or valued role that permits people to see others as like themselves rather than as someone who should be disqualified from membership. It permits what we call interpersonal identification, to see something of myself in the other person. He loves canoeing, 
So do I. He must be like me. Their community, too, might recognize some limitations to the person's full experience, and it is they who apply their thinking towards making reasonable adjustments. This is Mac. Mac, for a time, was regarded as the most disabled child in regular school within New South Wales, and yet that didn't hold his schoolmates back. Here they are playing uh, handball, and there was no way that Mac, too, wasn't going to be involved in the handball, and they came up with this solution, a little mini tramp on the front of his carrier here where Mac was in the game and, uh, and playing along and being involved, and it was the kids who came up with this. Membership confers belonging and acceptance, or at least tolerance, but it also brings new learning and feedback and encouragement. Belonging should change us. Stretch us to be our best so that we learn new things about ourselves, enabling further internal work, that deeper differentiation that we can bring back to the group. And so there's deeper integration. We grow and are transformed by the experience, hopefully in very good ways. Because one could join a criminal gang and get feedback to make one worse. Or closer to home, be in a segregated day program only mixing with people who are staff or other clients of the service. But we're not talking about those possibilities so much here. And the other people who make up the membership are also transformed by the positive presence of someone they may never have encountered, and in doing so become more tolerant and accepting. Now, isn't that, after all, what we want to see happen? Without such integration and acceptance, one would be left in one's own self-differentiated world a kind of self-absorbed admiration devoted to proclaiming oneself. That actually gets encouraged a bit these days. A hyper-individualism that demands the world accepts one as they are, unwilling to pay the communal price of membership, of being able to join in with others. We've seen that with Katie. Look at the efforts Katie went to to become a member of her community and a really great neighbour and citizen and to contribute to other people, which is what valued roles enable people to do. But she sorted that out herself. It's a fantastic example. That is certainly an option which some people choose these days. What are some possible approaches that increase the chances of success and reduce the tendency to be fearful of the unknown? Here's a couple of points. And in some ways, you've heard these points today already. I'm in some ways reiterating them slightly putting a, a different facet on it. And so there's nothing particularly new here, but we hope that you'll, you'll get a different nuance to it that'll fill any void that's there. The first one is that a son and daughter need a defined role. So we need to think in discovering the interests and gifts and talents that people bring. Therefore, what role prospects might a person have? Not just what they're going to do and fill their timetable with, their schedule, so to speak, but what are they to become? People are seen through their roles, and if there's no role, then only disablement will be seen, often in an enlarged or amplified way, which is not at all helpful and not who they really are. Be aware that the presence of formal staff roles also act to define the person they're supporting and can become a disincentive for other people to become involved. A valued role communicates everything a person needs to perform 
in a new environment. Valued roles contain high expectations. Remember, a person entering an environment for the first time will be especially alert to the cues available that support their role, where to sit, what to do, how to speak, what to look like. So be sure to have a clear idea about those cues. We have to do our homework in advance. They will need and have those available from the very first day. This isn't an opportunity to, oh, let him come in gradually. Oh, if he doesn't want to do that, that's okay. No, the cues have to be present for what that role requires from day one. Otherwise, the person will default back to other things that interfere with being able to hold that new valued role. We've heard too that we could video these scenes so that the person can anticipate and predict and even rehearse what it is that we'll be doing, though this might not necessarily be suitable for everyone. By the way, naming the role is a great way to let everyone know what you are striving for. People readily understand what you mean. He's becoming a technician. She's becoming an artist. As we saw with Tia, she's becoming a fashion designer. In fact, Tia has so many roles, I'm not sure which one I would name, <laughs> but it would depend then on the context. And people understand roles. They get on board quickly and therefore they identify everything the person is seeking to accomplish. It's just a little tactic, but it has a big impact. Having allies sets aside our fears very quickly. Others will present ideas that they want to run with. It was the managers at Woolworths that suggested that they could support Jacob without the need for a support worker. After all, they know the role a whole lot better than most support workers. And some of you would be familiar with David Hagner's research regarding the potency of natural supports in work environments that Wilton Tyree mentioned. So that's relevant here. The second point is to be clear then about the role staffer to play. Much energy can be spent procuring funding and staff without a clear sense of what role they are to play. We often panic over funding. In other words, acquiring staff can become an end in itself. This is neither beneficial for the staff or for the person they're supporting. A clear sense of how staff are to enable the good things of life is needed. As Janet Cleese pointed out, being a bridge from the devalued world of a managed life to the valued world of the shared space. Notice again in Tia's story, her staff were selected on the basis of their sewing ability. <laughs> what a match. In other words, the staff role is complementary to the role the person is acquiring and able to assist people on both sides of the bridge, the person being supported as well as others that then come to engage and interact with that person. Another feature, of course, is the staff need a role that makes sense in the community context as well, and that, that puts the person they support in the best light. Such a role must complement the role the person has, otherwise a staff role of support worker plunges the integrated person back into the client or patient or disabled roles. It might also mean less visibility for the staff member who operates in the background, providing immediate support when needed or bringing people together in complementary ways, such as a basketball coach or mentor or gym member or co-participant, music mentor or musician, and in Kia's case, a seamstress. They are there to bring members into close contact with their new members 
providing the existing members with confidence and support to do so. Success is dependent on both parties doing well over the long term. The group being entered with a work setting or sport or cultural group need to be aimed to succeed with the presence of the person with a disability. Sometimes our discussion of inclusion doesn't take this on board. It sometimes wants inclusion without considering what might it take for that to be successful so that both parties succeed in this enterprise rather than as a demand just to be present. And um, each deal with the demands of membership, whether it be the environment, the number of people, or the activities that it engages in. Can the group discover and make reasonable adjustments for their activities to continue? These are crucial questions that determine the long-term success of any enterprise. We don't just want to get our place in the door. We'd actually like for people to be able to stay there. And that means, too, that the group they're entering also survives well and survives even better and in a much more informed way because of the presence of the new person. Of course, each party having adaptive roles helps ensure success for everyone. Don't be drawn then, point six, into groups involving other marginalised people. More people are getting out and about these days, which is such a fantastic thing, but some doors within the community see multiple groups jumping on board, threatening the ability of that door to remain open. This has occurred in, in some neighbourhood houses, turning them into de facto day programs and reducing the involvements of ordinary members. So it's, it's destroyed the very thing it was setting out to achieve, somewhat because it's like, well, we've got an open door here, guys, and so everyone plunges in. The success of a person's presence is somewhat dependent on that entity's capacity to make reasonable individual adjustments for each person. And of course, if there are lots of people there, that individual capacity begins to break down and comes in regimentation and to a point where the, the new environment perhaps is overwhelmed. We've seen, for instance, group homes that turn up with entire group homes and the staff just leaves. And you've just got these ordinary people who were just now trying to accommodate and do a really good job, but are often overwhelmed through that experience. It can reach a point where it's no longer practically possible and threatening the very goal we've all been hoping to achieve. If our approach appears too militant or threatening, Doors may also close or simply move on to a new or secret location. In short, you have to be in the same place as other people. You need to have a reason for being together that makes sense to everyone. And you need to keep coming back together regularly. Regularity itself is such a, a fantastic asset. You often notice lots of things because, and that's that serendipity that's taking notice of what's occurring simply because you go to the same place on the same day at the same time and you start to see the same people there and they start to see you and recognize the person that you're supporting and they get known and sometimes all sorts of doors open. Paul, for instance, was a young man who they simply went to a coffee shop that they went at the same time on a Tuesday morning, about mid-morning. And it wasn't just to have the coffee, it was to meet people and to learn some skills. Paul demonstrated that he knew how to pick up the coffee, take it to the tables, 
when they're empty, then to return the plates to the counter for removal. And there, the support worker then approached the manager, who they'd become quite accustomed to and got to know, and actually asked him if Paul could get a job. And that turned out. He got a job there. He had to wear the shirt, and he went there every Tuesday, now not just to have coffee, but to actually serve the tables. As a result of that, he got to know a whole bunch of people very well, people that he invited to his birthday party, and they actually came. What interests and valued roles bring to our three questions of adeptity is purpose. When you are working to a large and known purpose of what it is you are becoming, you tend to be able to withstand the setbacks that come our way. Setbacks might actually make you stronger because you and your son and daughter discover who you really are and what you're really capable of. We saw a lot of that in Sue's story, all that they had been through and how strong they now are continuing to work on differentiation and integration. Harriet Tubman, some of you might know, and there's actually a film you can see, I think, on Netflix on one of those about Harriet. It's called Harriet. (laughs) And she's an amazing woman. She was an American abolitionist and political activist who remained wise in her later years. And she said, every great dream begins with a dreamer. Always remember, you have within you the strength the patience, and the passion to reach for the stars to change the world. So dream big and make it happen. Thank you. That was great. It was really great that you could weave in some of our other stories we've had throughout the day today. Yeah, such a rich day, so many great stories to to really the, to wrap around the theory in a sense. It tells us what to do, but having the stories, then having, let's say, the scaffold of the theory being attached to the stories. And uh, they, they have a nice feedback loop on themselves as well. I do have a feeling, though, I did miss one. I don't think I talked about lawn bowls, and I've got a bit about lawn bowls in here. I think it was the number two about the integrators being provided with a role as well. Did I cover I'm not sure I did. Sorry, everyone, having missed number two. I did skip across it thinking, Anyway, it's an important aspect to provide a role for the people that are going to be involved and you're inviting to be involved with the person you're supporting into these valued roles in in valued settings with valued people in valued activities. So those people need a role as well. And most people are open to the possibility of interacting with someone with a disability. Uh, Many may have had little direct experience, however, likely people will make mistakes and not always meet our expectations. But a role for them provides a clear starting point as they get to know someone. A role invites and defines and shapes their involvement in that first instance. It gives them a starting point. How am I to interact with this person? Given that I have very little experience, I'm worried about all the political correct things I hear, and I'm, you know, I don't want to make a mistake, so how should I do that? And we can simply clarify all of that because if we provide them a role, it's a bit like saying to someone, hey, I see that you go through our street on your way to church. Would you mind picking up Tom? Because he goes there as well. In a sense, you're asking them to do something that clarifies their role. It defines now how they're to interact with someone. So that clear starting point and um, the role it bites to and shapes that involvement. 
uh, someone being a welcomer or a coach at Moon Bowls or to orient them into a new work environment. Roles provide the context for interacting and relating together in a way that, that they can then make their own. Roles aren't always that strict. Some are, some are very tight, but many roles are quite broad and flexible. And when you provide a role, you're, you're not over-defining it. They're allowed to perform the role as they see fit, as they begin to interact with that person. So it provides a boundary, a structure, but it's not overly contained. It's not too strict. And that it gives each of them room to move to make it their own. So it's actually a really important point and helps a, a way that staff, when staff are operating that role within the community, can successfully bring people, introduce them, and provide the other person a role, that beginning point. As a relationship develops, they each might determine new roles. I prefer you being this, or I need your assistance with this. And they're free to do that. So this is often something needed, though, um, to help initiate the, the relationship in a good direction that you're aware of. So we might have a few minutes to, um, to go back if, if there are any comments or questions from the audience, Anne. There's a great question, Ashley, here. Uh, what drives the seemingly natural tendency to congregated settings, as in your example of an independent living solution morphing into a day program? So solutions to that is to avoid it in the first place. <laughs> Did we hear one of the stories talking, I think it was about Tiffany, that Janet had let the group was turning up for some artwork and she was enticed to join that group. It was the disabled art type group and they made very clear Tiffany went down that line and that meant they might have had to alter timetables so that Tiffany was only there with with other artists, not as part of that. But And that, that in a sense, threat to Tiffany's identity as well, to plunge her back into the disabled rather than the, the world of valued roles that she was occupying. So that's always a bit of an enticement and a, and a risk for people. So having to safeguard against that, realizing that mm. that's a bachelor control. Now, you can't stop other, you know, it's a free world and, and you can't stop people joining a group if the group, you know, accepts that. Um, but it, it is a threat to someone who's already there and uh, with, with some enticement that somehow they'll be better over in this other group. And um, you've got to know better than that, in a sense, not to fall for that invitation. It, it is a common yeah. problem, even with the location of resources for people. Someone hears that there's a there's a school that is that is open to integrating children, including them, and and, and then all of a sudden everyone wants to go there, and so that's a, a perennial problem. And where the school needs to say that there's a point at which the solids of the group will begin to overwhelm our ability to treat each one as an individual, as well as all of the children who were there, and and so that the thing they're aiming for isn't lost by being and in a sense, becoming a congregated setting. It's a really interesting dynamic then. When groups get too big, they can also provoke rejection. So you're wanting to avoid that potential. Of, you know, no more, we've had enough. <laughs> you kind of want to stay well away from that. 
Well, it looks like that might be the only question we'll have time for. Some of the comments that we're, we're kind of coming through are that it's such a great session, linking the theory to the practice, and people found it very informative. So thank you once again, John. That was fabulous. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Imagine More Podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And go to imaginemore.org.au for more great content.